Hello, I'm Chuck Wolf, and you're listening to WPKN 89.5 FM, listener-supported radio. And you're listening to the Emotion Roadmap, Take the Wheel and Control How You Feel. And today's show, I'm going to be talking to you about a number of topics that I feel like it's worth addressing as you think about ways that we can regulate our own emotions, understand how others influence our emotions, understand how we ourselves can influence the emotions of others. So I wanna talk in terms of leadership. I wanna talk about leadership in sports and in government. I wanna talk about some politics. I wanna talk about the ideas behind empathy. I wanna talk a little bit about marijuana and equity. And I wanna talk about the vaccinations, the COVID vaccinations uh, that are taking place in the state of Connecticut. And I wanna talk about them in terms of what I think has been some really uh, fantastic um, leadership by our, our, our governor, Governor Lamont. So uh, let, me, let me get started by yeah, welcoming everybody who's a regular listener. If you're new to the show, the show's all about helping people take control of, them, of their feelings, to change their feelings when it's necessary to change their feelings, to be able to influence the feelings of others. So often when smart people are stuck, it's almost always because something inside them inside you is something about feelings. Some emotion is causing you to feel confounded, uncertain, doubtful. You're worried perhaps about a situation where if you say the wrong thing or, or say something that needs to be said, but in the wrong way, that a situation might escalate and become worse instead of better. You're worried about a decision to make that has far reaching implications for you and perhaps for your family for your workplace, for your own business, for your career. It's possible that any one of these things might be having an impact on you right now. So the show is about this idea of using an emotion roadmap to guide the way you deal with feelings. So much of what is taught today about emotional intelligence is in the whole arena of awareness. How do you become more aware of what your strengths and weaknesses are relating to your own emotional abilities? How do you find out how to be better at dealing with some of the most challenging emotions? Depression, sadness, embarrassment, disappointment, betrayal, anxiety. None of these emotions are simple to deal with. And while there's a science of emotional intelligence, there's also an art to it. And the art has a lot to do with who you are as an individual, what's unique about you? And when you're dealing with others, what is different and unique about them? So we wanna understand how emotions work, that's the science, and we wanna understand how they work for you as an individual or the people that you personally are dealing with. How do emotions work for them? So this show is all about teaching you about that. And I like to talk to you in terms of stories because storytelling, I think, is the best way to uh, learn something, especially as you're listening to a radio or you might be viewing this on YouTube. Uh, I have a wonderful arrangement with the town of Simsbury where they have agreed for the past several years to take my radio show via video or sometimes just audio and play it for the people in the town of Simsbury where Simsbury Television uh, does a really fine job bringing really interesting and useful information to its citizens. 
So I'm privileged, I'm privileged to be on the Sims Roy television station, but also they post the shows on YouTube. And some of the ones I do, I post on YouTube as well. So let me start. One of the first things I wanna talk about is the Super Bowl. Now, if you've listened to my show before, you know I'm a fan. I'm, I'm a Boston raised uh, individual who spent uh, almost all my growing up years in Massachusetts. Lived in Boston, went to school in Boston, went to Northeastern University, and then later to Harvard University. So I, was, I spent a lot of time as a young person in Massachusetts where all my sports affiliations began. In any case, I've been a Patriots fan, even a season's ticket holder for a number of years. And I have enjoyed watching one of the greatest players of all time perform in person many times, Tom Brady. And so when Brady left the Patriots, if you know something about the, uh, about the National Football League, you know that Tom Brady, after 20 years playing for the Patriots, left for another team. He went down to Tampa Bay. Now I realize not everybody's a sports fan, so you may not know the story. So Tampa Bay was a, a team that hadn't won, I don't think any playoff games since 2003. They had a very talented group of individuals though, but they didn't have winning teams. They, what I mean by winning teams, they might've had a winning record, but they weren't in the playoffs for many years. And when Tom Brady wanted to renegotiate with the Patriots for an extended period of time, they thought, I, I can't say what they thought, but what the news reports are in the sporting section is that they didn't believe it was worth giving Tom the extended contract he wanted because he's the oldest quarterback in the league. He's now 43 years old. People usually have stopped playing long before they become 43 when they're quarterbacks. When you're a quarterback, you pretty much direct the offense. You're threatened to be tackled by very big people <laughs> every play that's run when your team is on the field trying to score. And uh, so you get banged up a lot. It's just the nature of football. Tom is an incredible human being in a sense of winning and performing. In all the years he played for the Patriots, 20 years, <clears throat> he actually went to the Super Bowl nine times. Nine times. Now there are 32 teams. So for one team to go to the Super Bowl nine times is pretty remarkable in and of itself. And in a, a bunch of those, um, he was the most valuable player in those Super Bowls. And he actually won six times and lost three. So just an incredible record as a quarterback. Now he wasn't the only one, there's a lot of other people who play on the team, but over those years, he's the only one that played in all of those games. Now, at the end of his time with the Patriots, he asked for an extension. They decided they didn't think it was worth it. They wanted to move on to somebody younger. It didn't work out so well for the Patriots, but that's a story for another time. But he landed up going to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. As I mentioned, a talented group of individuals who hadn't won very much in the past few years. And what happened when Tom went there was he changed the organizational culture. Now, culture is one of those words that's kind of amorphous. People really, people lots of times say the word culture, but don't really think about what does it mean, what it means. And for Tom and for the team, what it meant was they began to see themselves as winners. Now, they always, I think, as a group, saw themselves as talented, 
But that's not the same as seeing yourself as a winner. They saw themselves as winners. And that meant something. That meant a lot, actually. As the season unfolded, Tom had to learn a whole new system. When you come into a new system, it's not the same from one team to another. Each of the coaches in different, uh, for different teams have their own ideas about plays to run, how to read defenses, how to react to the other team's defenses, how to take advantage of the particular talents you have on your team. You're coming from a different team where the players are different people. And so you might have a really talented wide receiver on one team, not another. A really talented uh, offensive line that's good at protecting the quarterback on one team, but not another. So there's a lot of variables that make up what you can and can't do on a team. When Tom came to Tampa, he and the new coach, his new coach, Bruce Arians, had to figure out how to work together. And Tom had to develop some chemistry with a brand new team. He'd been on the same team for 20 years. That's a long time. Well, he played with this team for an extended <clears throat> period of time in real time, not in any preseason games. So in the beginning, when they first started off, it wasn't a natural year because of the pandemic for anybody. But for a new quarterback with a team, it was particularly taxing because you didn't have the preseason and the chance to practice together for any extended periods of time. So in the beginning, there was, a, there was some adjusting and they didn't perform that well. And it looked like Tom wasn't gonna be able to turn the team around in the way that he hoped. But by mid-season, they started to catch fire. They started to win game after game against really good teams. They actually got to the playoffs as a wild card, as, as somebody who um, didn't necessarily have the best record, but they were good enough to get in. And then they had to play three different teams with great quarterbacks. And they had to play two of those teams in the other team's park. Now it's not as big an advantage when you don't have lots of fans screaming for you, but it's still, it's the other team's home. So the players on the other team get to sleep in their own beds at night where you're in a hotel somewhere. Plus with COVID, obviously um, limited in what you can do in that new town. And you don't have a house that's yours that you can just walk around in freely. So it is taxing to go to another place to play other than your home, right, where your home field is. And so when they went to New Orleans, New Orleans was in their conference. They played them before. New Orleans had beat them very badly. They beat Tampa really badly early in the season. And they had a great quarterback, one of the best to play the game, Drew Brees. And the Patriots beat them badly on their home field. Highly unexpected. They then had to play Green Bay and Aaron Rodgers, another, I think, great quarterback who got the most valuable player award for the season in the NFL this year. And they had to play Green Bay in Green Bay, another really tough place to play when you're away from home. And they beat Green Bay badly. So this underdog, this team that was playing for the first time with a new quarterback that season, got to the Super Bowl to play against what seemed like an invincible Kansas City team. That on their way to the Super Bowl, they had beaten other teams pretty easily for the most part. And they had 
what people were calling one of the best quarterbacks ever to play the game, Patrick Mahomes. Certainly one of the most athletically gifted quarterbacks. And Tom Brady has said multiple times that he doesn't see himself as the most gifted athlete. He doesn't have the strongest arm. He is one of the slowest quarterbacks in the league in terms of actual foot, foot speed. But he has a way about him that just doesn't allow him or his teams to ever think they're defeated until the final buzzer sounds and they're actually behind. So when they went to play the Kansas City team that everybody thought would repeat, that Kansas City was, the Kansas City Chiefs were the team last year that actually won the Super Bowl. And everyone really expected it to be a tight game possibly, but if there was gonna be a blowout, meaning one team wins by a large margin, it certainly wasn't going to be Tampa. It was going to be Kansas City. And yet the opposite happened. The opposite happened. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers easily, I have to say easily, beat Kansas City. Patrick Mahomes was running for his life much of the evening that we watched the game. My wife and I watched it together. As we cheered for Tom Brady, Tom Brady's still our guy, even though he's down in Tampa and we're Boston fans. We still cheer for him. And everybody that's an older athlete that's trying to still play, even though they're aging, they're cheering for Tom Brady too. Because he's the oldest quarterback to ever win a Super Bowl. He's the first quarterback to ever go to another team in another conference. And in the first year, win a Super Bowl. All remarkable accomplishments. So how does he do it without all the athletic prowess that others might have? I listened to a podcast that Tom talking to, a really interesting interviewer, a funny fellow. Um, but Tom, Tom asked a question. He asked a question about uh, of himself and of others. Do you want to be the best? but you want to be the best version of you. I love the question. Think about it for a minute. Do you want to be the best, but do you want to be the best version of you? Well, what's the difference, you might ask? The way Tom explains it, he said that the best is just being better than anyone who's ever done it before, or at least it's good. But the best version of you, that's unlimited. That's going past what anybody's done before and doing only what you think you're capable of doing when you're at your very best. And when you think about that, he now has seven Super Bowl rings. He's now been to the Super Bowl, 11, let's say seven and three, 10, 10 times out of 21 years. And he is seven and three. And where earlier in most of his Super Bowl wins, there were very close competitive games this was his best win ever, I believe. There was a tweet afterwards where Michael Jordan and Tom Brady with all those rings on their fingers are pictured together. And it said, only these two could sit at this table. And then again, if you're not a sports fan, you won't recognize the name, but if you're a social equity warrior, if you believe in, uh, in, in people who are winners, uh, who have achieved enormous amounts in their lives, who also have tackled major social issues, then you might know and probably do know the name Bill Russell. When I was a young kid growing up in Massachusetts, 
Bill Russell was playing for the Boston Celtics. And in 13 seasons, he had 11 championships out of 13 years that he played. That's a phenomenal record. I don't know that anybody percentage-wise will ever come close to that. So then after the Brady and uh, Jordan tweet, Bill Russell tweeted, and he's got all 11 rings, <laughs> five rings on each, on each hand and one, one, one finger with two rings. And he said uh, that the tweet was, you're getting closer. <laughs> Interestingly, since uh, I'm in Connecticut and that's where we that's where we broadcast from in Bridgeport, Connecticut, um, on WPKN, uh, I also thought about what about Babe Ruth? And it turns out Babe Ruth actually won seven rings too as a baseball player, and three were with the Red Sox, and then four were with the Yankees. So all those people in Connecticut with split royalties, you should know the Babe Ruth's name as one of those people that won an amazing number of championships. It's kind of funny when I looked this up and read about it, the, the, the storyline was that Babe Ruth won three world championships with the Red Sox in six seasons that he played for them. In the last 102 years after Babe Ruth was traded, the Red Sox have won four more World Series. <laughs> so they won three with Babe Ruth and then only four more in the last 102, 102 years. A pretty funny story. But I wanted to make the case about why Tom was able to do what he did. And the way Tom talks about it is that as a young kid, he wasn't anybody special, he didn't think. I mean, he grew and he was tall and he was athletic, but he wasn't the most athletic. And uh, he was like a regular kid. He, he, you know, he ate a lot of fast food, junk food, cheeseburgers, nachos, French fries. He just filled up on what everybody else was filling up on who was around him. But when he actually started to play as a professional, he found himself and his body really hurting. And he, and he wondered, am I gonna be, is this gonna be over really quickly? Because when I throw hard, whether was, he was a really good baseball player, whether he was pitching, or throwing from the outfield, or he was trying to throw a football. He found himself having to ice his elbow and his arm quite often. As a young kid, and he thought, this can't be good. And so he began to ask that question early on about how do I be a better version of me? Are there some things that I can do that are gonna keep me healthier so I can do what I'm loving doing longer? Is there something I could do that would help me extend the time that I'm in this game or these games. And so he began to look at eating differently. I won't go into everything he says. If you know his story, he's got a whole bunch of products and he's got routines. He treats his body very differently. I will tell you this. He said, we have two choices about our bodies. We either think that everything we put into our body really, really matters, influences how we feel, not just today, but in the future. And if we wanna feel healthy, when we're older especially, we've gotta take care of ourselves today. So you either believe that or you don't believe that it matters. And, what you, and what, you, what you believe instead is that, you know what, we're here once, let's enjoy it. Let's eat what feels good to eat. Let's have fun with what we're doing with our bodies and let's not worry about what hasn't happened yet. And he said, somewhere, Along the lines in his early years as a professional athlete, 
he made a decision that he was going to honor his body. He was going to start doing things differently. And he started to try things. But the, the big picture on all of this is that how much do each of you take care of your bodies? How much of, how many of you are making what I consider to be the right choice? Now, honestly, I'm not perfect. I kind of split my views between, hey, I want to eat what tastes really great. I don't want to limit myself to a diet that precludes some of the things that I love. And Tom doesn't either, by the way. He does, he says, on occasion, I'll have a piece of pizza. Yeah, but on occasion, I'll have a half a pizza. So that's, we're a little different that way. But at the same time, I'm exercising regularly, trying to eat the right things almost all the time. I'm taking some supplements that I've talked about with my doctor. So, I mean, I'm trying to do a lot of what Tom says, and I encourage all of you, if you haven't begun that, to kind of take a look at yourself and ask yourself, can I be better, a better version of me? And I don't have to do everything at once. That's kind of silly. But can I start each day trying something for a while, make it part of me that's a healthier habit than the ones I've got, and then maybe move on? to a second healthy habit, a third healthy habit over time, until I'm really doing a lot to keep myself as healthy as I can be. Not just for myself, but for those people I care about and love who want me around and who I think I make a difference for. So I encourage you to think a bit about how do you take care of yourself? And then the other thing that Tom did was he held people accountable when his team played. As I mentioned, they didn't start playing really well in the beginning. They really struggled. And sometimes they struggled because they were a little lazy or they didn't focus or they didn't study hard enough pregame. They didn't go over the play so that when Tom called the play, they ran to the wrong spot and he threw to the right spot so they were both embarrassed. And you'd see him on the sidelines when the, when the play was, or even right there, right then, talking to him really loudly in the huddle. You gotta know where you're supposed to run to. What's the point of my throwing to you and targeting you if you're not gonna be where you need to be? So Tom didn't let things pass, but at the same time, he built people up. He would let them know whenever they got it right. He would scream about how great they, they played in a certain play, about how terrific they were. And it wasn't just about the people that would run the football, catch the football. He'd talk about the people blocking and tackling. He built people up and he held people accountable. And everything he asked anyone else to do, he was always doing at least the same amount or more than them. Whether it was studying, film, working out, eating the right things, getting the right amount of rest, trying to be innovative around the place. Now, one of the things you gotta understand, think about how much more you know as an older person than you did when you were a young kid and how valuable it would have been to know some of the things you know now when you were younger. But think about if you were still <laughs> playing a young man's sport and you had an older man's knowledge. Same for women, but this happens to be a, a, a male sport in the football leagues. So if you thought about what Tom did and how much he learned over the 20 some years he's been playing, he brings that with him into every game. And he's still, probably, this may have been his best season ever as a 43-year-old. 
especially towards the end of the season. So he started to text all his players as the playoffs started. And he texted them night after night. We are going to win this one. We are going to win this one. And then we're going to get ready for the next one. But right now, your focus has to be, and my focus has to be on that team that we're playing this week. Nothing else. Think about nothing else. Practice all that you can in your mind ahead of time. Be prepared. Do whatever works for you to get yourself fully prepared. And as I said, they went on to win in ways that no one believed possible when Tom went to that team at the beginning of the season. It was a pandemic year, incredible challenges, games canceled, you know, or postponed, no practice season, no chance to get to know your new teammates. And yet Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were able to win a championship. Tom was able to go from the American Football Conference to his first year in the National Football Conference and be a Super Bowl champion with his team, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And everyone, including Tom, will admit he's not the best athletic person to play the position. Clearly, that's not the case. But he probably is the most dedicated, the most passionate, the hardest working, the most inspirational, and the biggest winner of anyone ever to play the position. And that's why they call him the greatest of all time with the GOAT. So that's a story about leadership that starts with what are you willing to do to set an example? Because part of leading is setting an example. Part of leading is inspiring. Part of leading is to get people who want to follow you. For a long time, people would come to the Patriots, in part to play for Bill Belichick because he had a winning record. He was one of the best coaches of all time, but also to play with Tom Brady because they knew this was a man who didn't accept that you were ever going to lose a game until the game was actually over and you had lost. And then right back up again to think about next week, next game, next season, let's go. So I hope you kind of enjoyed that a little bit. Um, I know I go on for a while about my, uh, my uh, admiration for somebody who, who steps up to that level and plays uh, at, at such an incredible level. I've been an athlete myself. I've competed. I played varsity um, sports when, when I was in high school. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm something of an athlete. I never had that kind of dedication. But I have dedicated myself to this field, to the field that I'm in to trying to be helpful to each of you. Because honestly, if you learn something, if you are a leader and you think some of what I just told you about is gonna be helpful to you, that's great. But you don't have to be a leader of other people in an organization to benefit from the model of Tom Brady in terms of how he takes care of himself, how he wants to be around longer, how he wants to influence others. And you could be influencing your, your children, your teammates. Your teammates at work, not your teammates on a football team. You can be influencing your teammates in a volunteer activity. It, 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 there's so many things here for everybody. I hope you get that. One of the things that was said about Tom was said by the coach, Bruce Arians, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Bruce is considered somebody who is very relaxed around his coaching, they say. 
sort of laissez-faire as compared to Bill Belichick, who runs a very tight ship. I won't go into a lot of that, but what I will say is that what Bruce said at the end of the season, he said that we were very talented before Tom got here. So Tom didn't come here and, 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 and make these people more talented. There was already a lot of talent. He did bring a couple of people in that made us better, but we had a lot of good players already. But what he did do is he turned us into winners. He turned us into winners. And that was the difference this year. That was an amazing difference. And I'm so thankful we got him. I think that's very big on Bruce's part to say that. Next, I want to talk about another leader. Um, and you may not all agree with this one, but again, I'm, I, I broadcast in Connecticut and um, Governor Lamont is one of 50 governors who is charged with distributing the vaccine across all the citizens in his state or her state. And um, I think at the, at the last I looked, out of 50 states, in terms of efficiency and ability to get the vaccine into people's arms effectively, we're number three across the country. We're actually number three out of all 50 states. That's pretty amazing. And I know that there's been challenges with this, but I also know that every governor is challenged with it in different ways. I have a lot of, as I mentioned, I'm from Massachusetts. A lot of my relatives still live in Massachusetts and they have been complaining nonstop about how poorly run the state has, has, uh, has run their activity around COVID vaccinations. Their website and the numbers they called failed repeatedly. They didn't seem to have, like we had here, senior centers and, and public health facilities that were helping people, older people and other people who just weren't familiar with technology, get appointments. I mean, there was so much help here. I mean, sure, there was some confusion in the very beginning. There was everywhere. But Governor Lamont sorted it out. He paid attention and he didn't just follow CDC guidelines. CDC guidelines, on the one hand, everybody says follow the science. And most of the time, I think that's a great idea. But once in a while, the science is a bit confusing. One of the things that was said was, you know, there's a group of people in the state and I feel, I feel very badly for them because they have comorbidities. Now, I believe I have a, a one or two comorbidities. Um, and so I might fall into that category, but I, I think there are some people that have a lot of comorbidities, much more serious than something that I, I consider myself as having something that's a comorbidity. But one of the things that happened was they wanted Governor Lamont to, to, to make it special, uh, you know, special times for people with comorbidities to show up and get the vaccine. And I remember Governor Lamont, I believe said that, um, you know, I'm struggling with these comorbidities because first of all, there's, there's a list, but the list, for instance, doesn't include asthma. And this disease attacks the lungs. How can it not include asthma? I don't understand that. And what if somebody says to me, I wanna be on that list because I have asthma. Am I gonna tell them no, when I think that is a comorbidity, it should be on the list. He said, if I start to worry about how view comorbidities. I'm going to struggle with how to get this done. If I go by age, if I go by the fact that we know that the people that are dying from this disease are the 75-year-olds and above, that was the target first in our state. Now, I actually believe that we can influence our government, our governor, our legislators, 
they actually believe we have a lot more influential power than most of us believe. And so I saw an article published in the Hartford Current, and this is what it said. It said, in the state of Connecticut, the data that we've analyzed points out that 57% of all the deaths from COVID happen to 75 year olds and older, 57%. 80% of the deaths happen to 70 year olds and above. And 88% happen to 65 year olds and above. So I thought at the very least, the governor should know that if we are following the science, that I don't think it makes sense to stop at 75 and above. I think if eight out of every 10 people, that's what 80% means, that are dying from this, eight out of every 10 are 70 and above, that should be the category. But he was already down the lane, moving towards trying to get everybody 75 and older done. And of course, that's a lot of the people that are in our nursing homes. And that was a major, a major important point. And he stuck with that. But what he did do was he put the next group at 65 to 75, because he thought that way he gets 88% or nine out of every 10 people that die from this. And while I would have liked as, as somebody in the 70 above category, I would have liked that one. I understood 65 to 75, and that's what he did next. And then what comes after that? Because it was gonna be all the workers, right? All the workers in the state that are essential workers. And everybody wanted to, you know, all the signs on people's lawns that say, thank you. Thank you to everybody who's out there doing a job where they're putting themselves at some risk. Now, these are not the same as the healthcare workers. They're the people that work in the stores. They're the people that deliver the mail. They're the people that are doing their jobs in person, not remotely, right? So as that's happening, that seemed like a good group, except one of the things that I felt was an argument that no one seemed to be talking about was this. Teachers are a special group. Why are they special? Because when a teacher gets sick, it doesn't just impact that teacher and her family. What do I mean by that? When a teacher gets sick, you can't get a sub. And plus, you don't want a sub because you know that the kids now have been around that teacher, at least in that, person, in that person's classroom. Those kids now have to be remote. They have to quarantine. And the teacher has to go home and hopefully get better. So not only is one teacher impacted, but anyone that's in their classes are impacted and have to quarantine. And what does that mean? Well, we know there has been tremendous mental health issues for children who have been isolated and haven't been in schools. Everyone agrees on that. So when a teacher goes down, all those kids potentially that have also some special services provided at schools aren't getting those. And they're also in some cases suffering quite a lot about being socially isolated in their homes. And they're not learning in the way that we need them to learn. That's pretty clear too. So, Teacher, sick, lots of kids are influenced. And what happens when the kids go home? Everyone who has children knows that when you've counted on the school for your children to be there for a certain number of hours, that's where you expect they go, except on an occasional sick day. Now, in this case, all of a sudden, you're faced with 
your child is going to be in your house. Well, what if you're one of those other essential workers that has to go to work? What do you do? You can't go in. What if you're trying to work remotely? How can you work remotely when your child has got questions about how do I get the, on this Teams account or Zoom account or whatever it is the school's using? And mommy, I don't know how to do this. Daddy, I don't know how to do this. Grandma, or whoever's taking care of you, I don't know how to do this. How do you keep working? So everybody with children that, that are home when they're supposed to be in school because a teacher got sick and all the kids who are isolated and having mental health issues, these are a domino effect that happens when a teacher gets COVID that is different and much more consequential than any other essential worker. I mean, a, certainly an essential worker in any, in any facility, all the other workers have been around that person. And so, I mean, there's an impact that way, but nothing is the same as what happens when a teacher gets sick. And if you have several teachers in the school, maybe four or five, you've got to shut the whole school down. So I wrote to the governor, I called the governor's office, I wrote to somebody that works for the governor that I know, I wrote to my state uh, senator and my state representative, Senator Whitkos and Representative Hampton, and everybody pitched in and tried to make the case for teachers. I actually got a letter published in the Hartford Current that made this case. On the Monday where that was announced that Governor Lamont had changed his idea about who goes next. Yes, it was gonna be the 55-year-old, the 65-year-old, but it was gonna include special clinics for teachers and not just for teachers, but for janitors, for school aides, and for administrators, anybody that worked in that school building. In my mind, a great choice, a courageous choice, different than what the CDC, the CDC has been saying for some time that there's not a lot of evidence of transmission of the disease within the school. And I can accept that science but it doesn't change the argument of the impact that when a teacher does get sick, whether from at home, whether because he or she went to a store or she got it in the school, doesn't matter. The domino effect of a teacher getting sick is different and much more consequential. And so I just think Governor Lamont was extremely courageous and chose a very commonsensical approach to what came, what comes next. And if you agree with me, I think it's really important to let the governor know how much you appreciate him on this. And, and if nothing else, but recognize that we're number three in the nation. How lucky, how lucky are we to have him as our governor during, this, during these times? I think he's done a great job. So I wanted to say that today too. So that's about leadership. I wanna talk a little bit about um, what's happening with marijuana and equity. This is another thing that the governor's trying to tackle. Governor Lamont is in favor of legalization for recreational marijuana use. Now, I know there are people who are opposed to it. Uh, some, on, uh, some, some who have family members, for instance, who have had addiction problems, and they just think adding another substance that could lead to at least a psychological addiction. I don't think anybody makes the case for physical addiction for marijuana, but psychological addictions happens for some. Um, that anything like that is just like adding more fuel to a fire that's raging out there now. Now, I understand that argument, but I also think it's, I think it's a weak argument because if people are interested in marijuana use, it's not hard 
for them to figure out that if they drive across the border into Massachusetts, they can buy illegally. Or in their neighborhood, perhaps, or one of their best friends, or at least somebody connected to their friends is selling it on the black market, cheaper than maybe you buy it in a store. I think if somebody wants to get their hands on marijuana, it's gonna happen. And we've decriminalized it in, in, our, in our state. So it's not like, a, it's not, we recognize it's not a big deal for adults to use it, but we've just lost out on the advantages of taxing and making money and revenue from the sale of marijuana. That's another argument, right? That we, the state is in need of new businesses and more revenue. And why do we want people to drive across the border if they're gonna buy it legally and just simply to drive to a, one of the places in Massachusetts that sells it? What sense does that make? New Jersey just legalized recreational pot. New York is about to do the same. Rhode Island's talking about it and Vermont has. So, it, I mean, I think New Hampshire's still holding out, but um, it's not hard to find this stuff if you want to find it. It's just a question of, do we put in place a process and procedure that allows us to make gains from the taxable revenues? Now, there is a question about social equity that's out there, and that's complicating the process. And that's a different argument. And that suggests that the people that have been harmed and, and where the most impact has been felt in a negative way around marijuana is people in inner cities, often minorities, not always, but often minorities, but often also poor people who don't have access to legal uh, ramifications uh, in terms of the lawyers that they can get or the, or, or, or the, the particular um, areas they're from, um, maybe result in more, you know, um, sort of probationary work or community services where records aren't, aren't written down in the same way that it might be in an inner city, for example. And so there is some issues around that. And so there, there's a questions about how do we get that right? How, how do we make sure? And then the other question is, how do we give these businesses, not to the big companies, like the cigarette companies or the alcohol companies that already engage in substances with some questionable value, but that people seem to like at some level. Um, how do we let people who have been impacted the most take advantage of the opportunities that are coming because, because of the businesses that are gonna be here that are gonna sell these products at some point? Because it is coming, it's just a question of when. Do we wait two years, one year, five years before we get any revenue from it? Uh, we've already lost a couple of years to Massachusetts in that way. What is the equity question and how do you address it? I, I'd like to make the case, I think, that maybe you'll back me up. Maybe those of you who listen to this will write to your congressman, just like I did around the teachers, uh, about the teachers getting vaccinated first. Because I think we, I think we influenced that. I think teachers getting vaccinated were not just because of myself. I encouraged a bunch of our friends and our daughters that were living in Connecticut to, to also write and talk to their congressmen and women, as well as the governor's office. Um, and, and interestingly, I was listening to NPR the other day, and I, I heard from NPR that the unions, the teacher unions and the superintendents did not expect teachers to be singled out in this way. 
That was a complete surprise to them. So the negotiation for that to happen didn't come from them. So who did it come from? Maybe the governor thought of this on his own. Maybe he saw, you know, the, the, the note I sent him and maybe the person I know that works closely with him talked to him about this. I hope so. I'd like to think that we had some influence on that. I believe we did. And I believe we can on this too. And this is what I think should happen around revenues from marijuana. Um, on my radio show, those of you that have listened in the past to WPKN, the Emotion Roadmap, Take the Wheel and Control How You Feel, uh, I've heard me uh, interview a lot of different people, but one of the people I interviewed was someone who was a parent of uh, a child that was lost at Sandy Hook. And he is someone that's been extremely active in trying to make the world a better place after that horrific day where all those kids were shot and teachers as well. So I, I, what, he, what he's done, one of the things that Sandy Hook has done, their foundation, is they've created social and emotional learning programs that helps children to feel whole, that helps kids include other children, to make sure everyone feels as though they're part of the school, they're part of the school community, that they're a valuable member, that their self-esteem is high. And there's a lot of programs that Sandy Hook offers at no, at no profit to school systems. When I was talking to him about this, I got a call from someone who worked for the Archdiocese in Hartford for the schools who had implemented the Sandy Hook programs for their kids. They loved them. They, the kids love the programs, the teachers love the programs. They make kids feel whole. They raise kids' self-esteem. And one of the things that I know, these are not necessarily connected dots, but I connect them, is that in the past, there's been a lot of research around emotional intelligence and children with higher emotional intelligence scores are much more socially responsible they are much less likely to engage in antisocial behavior, much less likely to take drugs, smoke cigarettes, drink alcohol. They're much more likely to do their homework, to be good leaders, good team players, to be responsibly socially in all that they do. Those who have higher emotional intelligence scores. And I believe that the Sandy Hook programs, the social and emotional learning programs, raise everybody's levels of self-esteem, raise everybody's relationship skills, and help everybody to have more inner peace. In which case, the children who are exposed to these programs are much less likely to engage in the antisocial behavior of smoking marijuana, of smoking cigarettes, of drinking alcohol. Not that they'll never do it, but they don't have that need to fill a hole that feels unfillable. So why not use the funding for equity issues to bring these programs into all our inner cities and any of the urban and rural areas where we know we've had trouble with drugs? Why not target, find, find a way to set criteria about who, who's gonna get this? How are we gonna target the schools that need this the most? and bring these programs in. Now, it doesn't have to be Sandy Hook programs. There's also something called RULER. RULER is to recognize, understand, label, express, and regulate emotion. And it's a program coming out of Yale University's Center for Emotional Intelligence. I'm a friend with the director, Mark Brackett, and he has as a goal to try to implement 
the ruler program, K through 12, emotional literacy, social emotional learning into every Connecticut school. And if this was part of an agenda that was coming from marijuana revenues that helped pay some of the bills for this, why wouldn't everybody be on board? Using the revenues from this drug that's being introduced to our community, which has medicinal purposes, we've already accepted that, but also people enjoy as a recreational vehicle for having fun, responsible fun. But what if we actually brought programs into our schools in some of the most demanding and, and challenging areas to kids who will benefit because their self-esteem gets raised, they feel more part of the community and life is better for them. What if we did that with those revenues? And if you like those ideas, would you help support them by writing to the governor, by writing to your legislator? I find that a lot of times you don't even know who your legislators are. We often will know who our congressmen and women are for the United States um, you know, House of Representatives and our senators, Blumenthal and Murphy, but those aren't the people we're talking about. In my hometown for Simsbury, Connecticut, it's John Hampton's my representative. You might not know his name. And if you, even if you live in Simsbury, you might not know his name, but that's who it is. And if you live in Simsbury, your state senator is Kevin Whitcoast. Do you know who these people are where you live in Connecticut? And can you take the time to find out how you can write to them through email, through tweets, through Facebook, through regular mail? and also on the phone. Let them know what you think about this idea and anything else you think is important to share with them. It's really important for you to know how to do these things. <laughs> okay, so that, that's what I wanted to say about marijuana and equity. Uh, and finally, I'll leave you with this. Trending today is empathy. Empathy is a good thing. But what is it really? And how do you do it? And how do you know if you're good at it? Let me give you something you can all try. First of all, let me explain that empathy has two parts to it. One is your ability to see and hear and recognize what another person is feeling. See and hear it. Another is what you sense. Sometimes no words are exchanged. You might have your back to somebody in the room with you, but you have an overwhelming sense of fear coming from some other person, or joy, or anger, or shame. Those are things that you might feel from another person. Those are somewhat intense emotions. You don't usually often sense another person's, you know, minor feelings. I mean, you might to some degree, but not with a high degree of accuracy. But some of the ones that are very intense, you may often just know are happening even before you see or hear them. Now, having said that, um, how do you do more of it? And how do you also look through somebody else's eyes? You've all probably heard the idea, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. Well, how about not walking a mile in somebody's shoes, but just seeing through their eyes? What is it they see? And you can start with asking them, what do they see when they're with you? So think about this. Let's say you've got a daughter. You adore your daughter. You know that there are times when you and your daughter clash on occasion. But mostly both of you, you believe really love each other and you get that. So let's assume you want to improve your empathy with your daughter. 
think about this. This is these are questions that um, are good to ask as a leader in any organization, but you can ask them in your own families. And you can do this with somebody outside your family. This is just a suggestion, okay? The questions are, as you think about your daughter and you're looking through her eyes as best you can, ask yourself, if I was to ask my daughter this question, what do I think she would say? And the question is, what do you like that I do that you want me to keep doing? Are there some things that you really like that I do that you want me to keep doing? How about this one? Are there some things that I do that you'd like me to stop doing? And what do you think she would say? You could actually write these down. And then here's a couple of more. What do you think she'd want me to do more of? How about less of? How about something I'm not doing she'd like to see me start doing? So here's the things. I'll say I'm slow. Keep doing, stop doing, more of, less of, and start doing. Write down what you think she'd say and then ask her and see if you were right. Because if you're right, then your empathy level is pretty high because you know what she's feeling and how she's feeling and why perhaps even she's feeling the way she does. If you have missed on a number of them, then maybe you need to pay a lot closer attention if you really wanna be empathetically responding, not just to her, but you can do this with other people. You can do this with somebody at work. You can do it with your spouse, your partner, with your aging parent. <laughs> I mean, you might not like what you hear. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother session. I'll talk more about that next time I'm on the air with you. But that's it for the day. So I hope you enjoyed the I hope you enjoyed the show. It's been nice visiting with you. And I hope you learned something about leadership, maybe a bit about empathy, about being inspirational, about being courageous, and how to influence others. And I hope you choose to do all those things going forward. Thanks. You've been listening to WPKN 89.5 FN. I'm Chuck Wolf, and this shows the Emotion Roadmap. Take the wheel and control how you feel. Bye-bye, everybody.